Hello everyone and welcome to part two of our novella collection Full Dark No Stars. On this episode we're going to be exploring the last two stories in the collection Fair Extension and A Good Marriage. So if you missed part one, the first two stories, go ahead and pop over to episode 18 and listen to 1922 and Big Driver and then you can jump on over here. So we have two stories we're going to cover today uh, in this one and the last of the collection that is so near and dear to my heart. So I hope you guys enjoyed part one and we're going to dive in with the same kind of format where each story is getting its own spotlight and then we'll have a couple concluding thoughts and I'll talk to you about the next book on schedule and all that good stuff. But let's dive in with Fair Extension, which is our third story in the collection. It's the shortest one at a little over 30 pages, and it kind of makes for a really nice palette cleanser while bringing about equal enjoyment and curiosity. Uh, I think because of its brevity, it's the reason why it's the only story in the collection that didn't get a feature film. There is a three minute short film uh, on YouTube, I believe some sort of small uh, studio enterprise did a little short film with it, which is cool, it's just there's so much more that I, I want to see. I think this could be a feature film. I really do. I think that they would have to add a lot more, but the premise is awesome. We always want deal with the devil narratives. They're so good, and I think they're always welcome because there's, there's fun, fresh, crazy shenanigans that you could take it in in terms of directions and I uh, I think that uh, we need some writers in there to to put this one on screen I think it would be pretty cool so I enjoy what Steve does with this one because as I mentioned deal with the devil narratives are just everywhere especially in music we got a lot of those in music um, but it's it's a super fun premise for storytelling even though it is cliche anybody can make it fresh and what I like with this version is we see the mutation of what happens to the character when they get involved with the devil um, and I, I like that I like that we kind of see the progressive blackening of them so the phrase the devil made me do it doesn't really apply with this story with fair extension and what we have with this one is the devil laid out the terms and I followed them so um, one of the seven deadly sins that I've chosen for this story is of course envy in big bold letters all caps Oh man, guys, this story's just dripping in green envy. So whatever your favorite shade of green is, let that be your filter for this story. Mine is Malachite Green. 
which I don't know if it's a gem or a mineral, but it's gorgeous. And this story is just malachite green envy for me. It's it's great. Um, it's not long enough for me. I'll talk about that in a little bit where I just was so hungry for more because the envy made me greedy. And so <laughs> I got really greedy at the end and, and wanted quite a bit more. But um, in the afterward notes, Steve says he got this idea while walking near a turn pike or a frontage road as we say in the west i'm not sure what you what others say um but we'll just say turnpike for for this example in bangor maine where there's often uh vendors on this little area he visits when he goes on his walks and uh, it's kind of near a non-busy side of the airport is this uh, little section of vendors so he was inspired by that and because it was a bangor inspiration he decided to set the story in dairy because dairy is just bangor's mask according to steve so woohoo for all of us fans of it. Um, I, anything in dairy has me salivating for sure. So we get some mentions of uh, within the story of the barons as well as the great flood from several years back that almost destroyed the town which made me smile. And there's one other little golden nugget in there that I will let you guys find. It's subtle but it's perfect for all fans of the clown. So uh, Dave Streeter is our main narrator of this story and he is suffering with cancer and undergoing chemo. We never find out what cancer it is, but when we meet Dave, he is not doing well at all. And our first moments with him are when he's pulling over in his car to vomit and he just happens to pull over, coincidentally or not, to the little turnpike area where we have a uh, someone sort of waiting for him. So we're meeting Dave at a very low moment, which is of course prime time for uh, somebody to show up on this little frontage road with his quote roadside business, even though there's really nothing in front of the man that seems like it's being sold in terms of goods to sell. So. Uh, that man is a pudgy guy under a yellow umbrella named Mr. George Elvid. So Elvid, if you guys are good with anagrams, you can crack that one together pretty quickly. But Dave gets out and they have an amazing dialogue exchange and Mr. Elvid cuts right to the chase with, I can help you out. But what's unique about this one is he, what I loved is he really pulls it out of Dave and exploits it in a creepy, cool way. Um, so to illustrate that a little bit, to kind of get you um, primed for what I'm exploring in the unique elements of this story, I'm gonna read a page from it and kind of highlight the amazing dialogue. It's so good. But also show the movement of the scene and show how Elvid slyly gets this tiny, tiny grain of envy inside of Dave and just blows it up, just like pumps this thing full of air. There's also some really awesome examples from It and Life and Dairy. Uh, so this scene got me super excited. So this is uh, on page 255 in the American hardcover, uh, a little bit halfway down. So, okay, let's dive in. 
Streeter studied Elvid with fascination, that momentary impression that the man was taller and that there were too many teeth inside his smile had gone. This was just a short, rotund fellow who probably had a green outpatient card in his wallet, if not from Juniper Hill, then from Acadia Mental Health in Bangor, if he had a wallet. He certainly had an extremely well-developed delusional geography, and that made him a fascinating study. Can I cut to the chase, Mr. Streeter? Please. You have to transfer the weight. In words of one syllable, you have to do the dirty to someone else if the dirty is to be lifted from you. I see. And he did. Elvid was back on message, and the message was a classic. But it can't just be anyone. The old anonymous sacrifice has been tried, and it doesn't work. It has to be someone you hate. Is there someone you hate, Mr. Streeter? I'm not too crazy about Kim Jong-il, Streeter said, and I think jail's way too good for the evil bastards who blew up the USS Cole, but I don't suppose they'll ever. Be serious or be gone, Elvid said, and once again he seemed taller. Streeter wondered if this could be some peculiar side effect of the medications he was taking. If you mean in my personal life I don't hate anyone, there are people I don't like. Mrs. Denbro next door puts out her garbage cans without the lids, and if a wind is blowing, crap ends up all over my lawn. If I may misquote the late Dino Martino, Mr. Streeter, everybody hates somebody sometime. Will Rogers said, he was a rope-twirling fabricator who, who wore his hat down around his eyes like a little kid playing cowboy. Besides, if you really hate nobody, we can't do business. Streeter thought it over. He looked down at his shoes and spoke in a small voice he hardly recognized as his own. I suppose I hate Tom Goodfew. Who is he in your life? Streeter sighed. My best friend since grammar school. So that's my scene for you guys. Uh, I loved it. I really enjoy the lead up to it, how he just slyly pulls it out, and it's very, very subtle for Dave. And so what happens after that scene is he gets that nugget out, right? We we learn that it's Tom. And then uh, what happens is he starts recalling all of the moments in his life where Tom has sort of, uh, as the Aussies say, cut his lunch. <laughs> I believe that's the right way of using that expression. Forgive me if I got that wrong. But um, basically stole his thunder and completely just shined bright when Dave was just sort of lurking in the shadows, kicking rocks. And what is amazing in the scene is he gets so heated because the devil is pulling it out of him Dave is screaming, like with veins in his neck, uh, screaming, whereas that tiny little microscopic grain of envy was very, very small, but then talking with George Elvid, it just, uh, it gets, it gets blown up real quick, which is something I really enjoyed, is how he takes something very, very small and makes it uncontrollable, so... I really enjoyed that aspect and then shortly after the deal is done and poor Tom's life they 
it takes a drastic turn for the worst, whereas Dave's, he's cancer-free almost within a day, and it's easy street for Dave's life and poor Tom and his family. So because this one is so short, there's not too, too much to really dive in um, as in depth uh, because the characters, everything moves very quickly. But the one theme that I wanted to kind of explore with you guys and I I think is is one that Steve is trying to, to um, bring to the surface is just the topic of the devil is not your friend. So I, I like that... Um, he really is really quite evil, really evil in this in this uh, um, tale. We've got just that sinister nature, and what's really interesting is that to remind Dave of their deal, he makes him sort of tithe, for lack of a better word, fifteen percent of of his money every year. And of course that's very easy for Dave as he becomes immensely successful and very wealthy with this deal. Um, but the deal is not forever. It's about 15-20ish years. Um, and so, but what we see here is that I think in pop culture the devil gets that sexy treatment as he sh as he you know is want to have for example that show lucifer they pick this a super hot british guy to be lucifer and what i what's interesting about those narratives is they make the viewer kind of have sympathy for the devil sympathy or empathy or look at him as if he would have a human soul and do what's within a human soul to do, such as love and kindness. And what I like about this story is Steve King kind of rem reminds you as the reader, um, no guys, no, like he is not your friend. He's not for you. He's, uh, as they say in Sunday school, he's out there to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's in a sexy package sometimes, but his his deals, they'll always go bad. Um, they're, and it's always going to be a bad idea. It's just bad. It's a bad idea, guys. And I think in this narrative, we see poor precious Tom, who... He, he's got a wonderful marriage. He has three beautiful kids. He has a successful business um, in the sort of sanitation industry. And his wife dies of cancer. His son has a tragic health accident. His, his daughter's marriage crumbles and more health problems. It's just disastrous. And, you know, I... Dave's wife, um, she doesn't even really want to be around Tom's family anymore because their bad luck is so devastating um, and the pain of his misfortune is so devastating. But what's really gross is Dave has dinner with him almost every week and just watches this misery unfold and he loves it. And that's the gross part is we really see um, what this deal has done to Dave and made him such a monstrous person. Uh, at the very end, without revealing anything, uh, it just ends abruptly, which is why I got really greedy and wanted more, but um, we just end on this note with Dave and his wife in immense bliss and happiness. I believe they're on like a tropical island vacation, and uh, Dave 
it's just she she says I I can't ask for anything I have everything I want and Dave says oh I, I want more um, I don't think he says it out loud but there's just um, that final note of not only is the deal with the devil the worst thing you could do um, but there's never going to be rest. There's never going to be satisfaction, maybe until he dies. Um, so even though he's in immense bliss in that moment, you know, there's, it, it's never going to be enough. So there was that aspect as well. So in these short 30 pages, there's lots of good things to um, dissect about the way uh, Steve decided to portray uh, Mr. George Elvid. But uh, the devil's not your friend. And I like that the evilness of, of that comes through in this story, rather than in some of the other narratives where the devil's really mysterious in the background and like you shake the hand and then it's done forever and then it's just misery ensuing and then you never hear from him again. Um, we have uh, Dave consistently submitting money and sort of in this immense state of gratitude um, but he's also been morphed forever of just watching his friend's life fall apart um, the way the story works um, through time is at the time Dave meets George and shakes his hand and does the deal it's August of 2001 so shortly after we have the towers and then we have 10 years of just utter despair for Tom and then uh, just an absolute up climb of success and fortune for um, for Dave so on one hand a reader could potentially see I don't see what the problem is it sounds like a great deal he gets 15 to 20 years of awful uh, or pardon me of awesome rather than awful um, but then it really sort of asked the reader to explore your your own soul like could you really like sit back and watch all of this pain um, and all of that uh, one of my favorite German expressions schadenfreude where you're seeing someone in misfortune and almost laughing at them and enjoying their misery how could you do that um, like where in the human soul is that possible especially knowing you're the author of it you're the author of their pain um, for the most part or you put it in place you orchestrated it all so I think that Steve would agree that some of these monstrous, you know, fat cats at the top maybe have been morphed by the devil, where they don't have that empathy in their hearts anymore. They don't have any of that stuff that makes people good humans and caring for their neighbor. And we never really um, see of Dave sort of stepping in and helping a little bit. He's kind of just watching the fire burn, which is pretty gnarly. So, uh, for me, many readers agree it's just a perfect ending to the story. I got greedy. I was seeing green. I wanted more. I wanted to know what it looked like at the tail end of the deal, because uh, I believe he signed up for about 15 to 20 years, potentially. 
So I did want to know what happened to Tom's line, uh, his family, even though it was just going to be more and more miserable. Um, so I enjoy this uh, deal with the devil narratives. They're fun um, in terms of what direction people want to take it. Sometimes the devil's really mysterious. Other times, like Mr. Elvid, he's just a matter-of-fact businessman who's going to require his cut every year, and he's also going to mutate you into that. He's going to leave his mark on you where you're going to be changed forever in a negative way. Um, but I don't like the Lucifer TV show where it's like, oh, the devil's nice. No, no, guys, no. Like, he is the epitome of bad. Dark is not light. These are one of those things. Like, there's no gray area. He's a bad guy. Bad, bad, bad. So, the sexy British guy, it works for TV. But, um, yeah, he's not nice. So, I think in that Lucifer show, I've only seen a few episodes. I've heard it's wonderful. Not knocking it. I'm sure it's a great television show. But it's just... It, uh, <laughs> um, when you have the character of the devil, guys, there's just empirical truths that, like gravity, that we have to adhere to, you know, um, up is up and down is down and, um, you know, left is not right and right is not left. The devil is bad and he's gonna destroy you and he doesn't care about you and he's gonna lie to you. So, um, I enjoy that we get the devil as evil in this story because um, I think lately in this last decade we've seen him as sexy <laughs> and uh, nice quote nice um, so uh, yeah this is old school it's old school but it's still fresh so I enjoyed this one but oh Steve give me more give me more I'm greedy this envious story made me greedy so I want more, but you can let me know if you think it's ending perfectly and maybe I just missed something, um, which is always possible. So this one is just short and sweet, so we're going to dive right over to the big enchilada, the piece de resistance, which is uh, my favorite story in this collection, A Good Marriage. So let's, let's tiptoe on over there. Alright everyone, this is our last pit stop in the dark. As they say, the night is darkest before the dawn, and I think this story is the darkest before the ending. And if the expression, saved the best for last, was ever applicable for me, it's 100% right on with a good marriage. Oh my goodness, guys, this, this novella. Oh my gosh. Okay, so um, seven years ago, I enjoyed this story quite a bit when I read it. I never forgot the ending because it's one of those that's really shocking, uh, graphic, and unique enough to where it just stays with you. But one thing that got me really revved up this second time around was how in seven years my viewpoints completely shifted as to just how awesome it is. I, I think I went from viewing it as like, oh, that was a good story to quadruple times that 
to this being maybe one of my all-time favorite novellas from him. And I think it it just has to be because I've gained a few more years under my belt and one's perspective changes. And I think for me personally, you look at commitment and marriage and relationships as this ideal place to rest your head and rest your whole everything and build a nest and build a life and then you build a little wall around it and keep the world out. And I think on this second reading, I had one of those moments where this story just became larger than life for me, guys. It, it broke through. It, it broke through, uh, meaning it just shook me to my soul. My soul, you guys! Um, and I think those soul shaker ones are when... I think you know when you found one when days go by and you're still thinking about a story, when it's still in your mind as you're going about your day. And that was me and a good marriage. So to further highlight that, a few weeks ago we had Lizar as a guest on the podcast. She's my really good friend and she had a great point about identifying what scares you and then crawling through whatever particular Stephen King novel would best suit that fear in terms of recommending um, what kind of creepy experience one could suggest on a Stephen King journey. And I've always known I've hated serial killers. I'm just not a fan. Monsters, ghosts, demons, love them. Bring them on. Um, they're not scary for me. But killers, yes. <laughs> um, but what I realized with this reading, um, and even more deeper, darker, uh, more than killers, uh, I'm struggling with what to kind of title it, but... I guess, domestic delusion or domestic betrayal. Um, but basically, because of a good marriage, I realized I'm terrified, mortified, petrified of what happened to Darcy, our main um, female protagonist in this story. Someone very close to me, the idea of someone very close to me turning out to be an evil murderer. <laughs> It just shook me to my core, you guys. Like, my my heart's pounding just thinking about it. Um, I think I'm still coming to terms with it. Uh, this second reading, I just fell so deeply in love with how sharp the writing is, how genius the suspense is in this story. But overall, guys, the subject matter, it just broke through. It just broke through. It was way too real for me. Um in it in in good in good ways for sure but oh man uh so one of the reasons i think it just stuck to me like a jagged thorn from a hell bush was darcy and the timeline of these characters is very similar or close to very um pardon me to many women in my immediate life Darcy reminds me of aunts of mine. She kind of reminds me of my own mom. Uh, it just coming from the fact that it's that timeline of being born in the early 60s, so a boomer for sure. Uh, the character of Darcy, and I believe women of that time, 
especially women I personally am affiliated with, you grew up, you were encouraged to try and be beautiful, to get some secretarial skills, learn how to type, typing in shorthand, very important, but college wasn't necessarily going to be in the picture. The goal was to get a job after high school and then get married and be a mom and then it was totally natural for career skills to get really dusty because you were a full-time wife and mother and all of the domestic stuff sets in and you just grew these concrete roots. And then concerning the character of Darcy, after nearly 30 years of this safe, comfortable life as a wife and a mother, this nuclear bomb of truth gets detonated in her life and she's she's shocked to the realization that there's very little resources especially financial ones that aren't attached to her husband because her entire life is this person and it just freaked me out thinking about women in my life this could happen to and women that i've read about that it has happened to and I, the vulnerability we're all in i think men and women when we get too comfy because love is comfy and the sadness of decades getting obliterated and the idea of living a lie of just all the moments and all the good times and oh my god <laughs> a nightmare so it, that in addition to like personal fears that sort of bubbled up to the surface this entire thing this entire novella just as the young kids say slayed me i was slain and slewed and dead um so these last 84 pages in full dark no stars just got my goose guys so yes this one crowns crowns the cake for me um so steve king said this story was inspired by real life serial killer dennis raider also known as btk who murdered eight women and two children um, but throughout that entire time, he was married to one woman, Paula Rader, for 34 years. And many, especially those who live in the Wichita, Kansas area, were just dumbfounded as to how in that entire time, how could you have been married to him for over 30 years and not have known or suspected anything? And according to Steve, he thinks it is possible to not know, to not see, to just not to not know and this story is really about how we never really know anyone uh, especially those we love the most which is a, a seriously devastating thought but um, there's truth to it most definitely and I think the author Gillian Flynn also explored this with her super sinister really badass novel Gone Girl but Gone Girl explores new love and new marriage and I think Steve with this novella is exploring the sort of long-term sleeper cell double life kind of monster which is what Dennis Rader was um, he was a husband father community leader he met his wife Paula at church and according to him cherished her as his wife um, until he was caught in 2005 so with this story my two observations that we're gonna explore I only have the two but they're pretty meaty so um, let's dive in with what I feel are the most 
important slash my most favorite aspects of this novella and what I observed. So the first one, as I kind of delicately mentioned, is channeling BTK. I think knowing about BTK makes this story so much more rich. And so um, if you don't know about BTK, I'll, I'll kind of talk about a few things here. Um, if, if you're a Stephen King fan, you might be able to tell me more about BTK. Um, as I mentioned, I'm not a fan of killers, so I don't, when I have to research them, I do so begrudgingly, but uh, this one was just a, a homegrown uh, slice of crazy. Uh, Dennis Rader was born in 1945 in Wichita, Kansas. I think it was Wichita, but maybe Kansas. Um, if he wasn't born there, he lived there, and he commits his first series of murders in 1974. He pauses for a bit until 1986. Then there's a few more murders, um, and then after 1991, there's nothing for 25 years until he's caught in 2005. And he is currently serving a 175-year sentence for 10 convictions of first-degree murder. Rightly so. But uh, he was a father of two children, a boy and a girl, one born in 1975, the other in 1978. And uh, he was married to Paul, the same woman for for since 1971 so there's like a strange wholesomeness about him he never sexually violated any of his victims so i don't know if that was maybe an attempt at being faithful or somewhat less heinous or what but he was the president of his church council he was a cub scout leader he was just this portrait of civil obedience um, but he was arrogant as hell and he wanted adoration and praise for the killings so I think his ultimate undoing was he sent a floppy disk to cops with, I believe there were some photocopies of victim items, much like we see here in this collection, with a few um, victim ID cards, there's a library card in there. Um, so he would flaunt these things because they're only things the killer could have, and I think um, the 21st century caught up with this joker because the uh, police analysis uh, or the analysts they went into the metadata and tracked his IP and it's like so he he screwed himself really but he w he would love to do that um, just like we have many past serial killers who would play cat and mouse with the cops zodiac guy did it um, I think son of Sam did it they just wanted attention and you know fame and praise so he craved power and control and felt in his deluded mind he could have it and deserved it and just a total psychopath so i'm really not the best uh when it comes to uh giving uh serial killers their their i don't know um spotlight of fascination i i there are 10,000 other true crime podcasts who do a much better job at that than I do, but I'm not a fan of them. I, I don't really like to, you know, exp yes, I, I'm equally fascinated by the heinous things that are done. Well, the mystery aspect is what I enjoy. I like anybody. I enjoy the mystery, but I'm so glad he was caught and brought to justice. And uh, I I don't really like sort of giving killers that, that spotlight or too much of my time because they're bad guys. And uh, yeah, I don't really 
not not a super fan but um, I did enjoy reading about BTK because it's really essential to enjoying this story as much as I did um, because Steve really creates a BTK-esque kind of character with Bob Anderson Darcy's husband so Bob is a coin collector that's his great passion and he and Darcy have kind of made it a side business he's an accountant he also is a Cub Scout leader um, he has been married to Darcy for 27 years with a killing spree close to BTK his victims have been 10 women and one child and they this one they're worse than BTK of course because they're all um, such sexually sadistic killings very graphic um, lots of biting uh, very violent rape and strangulation and um, a little bit of the the binding and torturing for sure he seems to go after women who appear or seemingly dress provocative and he calls himself BD um, which the police it's actually the name like B-E-A-D-I-E -E. so he's referred to in the media as BD but it actually stands for the initials BD which um, are associated with Bob's childhood friend Brian Delahanty who supposedly was the psychopath that influenced him as a young boy but this is my own sort of hypothesis on this um, it seems contextually that Brian was a real person Brian Delahanty and he was a little sociopath that would share all of these creepy sinister plans with young Bob and uh, Brian was killed uh, by a, in a car accident and so then Bob sort of assimilated his creepiness and uh, became a serial killer. But I, this is my question for you guys, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Is he real? Um, is Brian Delahanty real? Or was this just Bob as a psycho from moment one? I would love to know. So, uh... Please let me know your thoughts on that because I think contextually Brian is supposed to be real on how he's referred but in my mind I'm just like or you just made him up or or Bob is just a liar and a crazy person and he made it up to kind of deflect his guilt so I'm not sure I'd love to know what you guys think but I, I don't tr I the minute I found out what Bob is I stopped trusting him so that's I think why I believe the Brian Delahanty story is bull and it's just it's always been Bob as a nut job the whole time and creating an alternate personality so yeah I would love to discuss that um so my suspicions are that there was nobody. Uh, BTK wrote to cops that the way, he, or claimed that he was the way he was due to quote factor X. So there was just something there. There was no cure, no stopping it. It was just there forever. So um, I, I recommend having a little bit of background on BTK before you go into this story. It comes to life a little bit more. You can kind of trace those patterns and the similarities, especially about his poor wife, Paula Rader, and how she parallels and greatly resembles um, our sweet Darcy, except Steve King gives her um, such a cool upper hand that I don't think poor Paula ever had. So I, our, our, 
<laughs> let me get my S's together here. The the deadly sin that I feel is operating, uh, this is just a little tangent and then I'll get back to our, our um, observations. The sin that I'm observing in a good marriage is sloth. So sloth is slightly hard to define, but here are my ideas for why it belongs in the story. Contrary to what many believe is just considered physical laziness or that old phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop, not being productive means you'll get into trouble kind of thing. Sloth is, I think, better observed in these four ways, which one is carelessness, two is unwillingness to act, three is half-hearted effort, and four is easily discouraged when faced with adversity. So with these sort of definitions of sloth, it's not just being lazy, it's the fact that you turn away from an opportunity to act. And I think that in the beginning of this story, we do see that from Darcy a little bit. We see that unwillingness to act to discover what she doesn't want to know. She really, really wants to have a blind eye. And we see that when um, when she's making her discovery on Bob's secret. She finds a very creepy magazine in the garage and she starts justifying it right away. Um, her curiosity does get the better of her, thankfully, but uh, we, we do see that, especially after um, she is kind of going through the shock of it all. She's rationalizing. She's, she's uh, even when Bob is literally and physically in front of her, telling her, she almost is just not wanting to know. She's just like, I, I because it's the destruction of her, her life that's going to come down all around her. So that sin of sloth, of potentially, we don't have enough context on what her life was like before. We have a little bit, but maybe overlooking for years before and not digging deep enough. Um, an example of that is her sex life, which I'm going to talk about in greater detail in just a second. But that's the sin I have for this one. I know it might be a hard sell, but that's uh, the vein I was thinking about is Darcy's sort of unwillingness to act in the beginning. But um, with this next item I'm going to talk about, I think Darcy does get to redeem herself from the sin of sloth. Um, and that's um, built upon with my next sort of topic, which I'm calling female metamorphosis. So when Darcy is faced with the shattering reality of who Bob is, truly who he is and what he's done, she's faced with an immense decision. She has this just cataclysmic decision to make. And um, Darcy has seemingly been a woman who's always just followed the rules, never rocked the boat, and she's predictable to Bob. Um, when they talk, he he always uses a phrase like, oh, but you always do this, and I, I know this about you. You're, you're so apt to do this. So Darcy is so sweet, and she just does all the right things as a wife and mother. She goes to book clubs, she has her knitting circle, she has her safe little world, and has represents herself as this particular kind of controllable woman. Her identity has no curveballs um, until 
And this is the best part, when Bob turns. When Bob turns and she sees his true colors, then Darcy sort of turns and realizes that she has to have a plan and she transforms. And it's so awesome, guys, because she does it in a really cool way. Um, Darcy kind of plays possum a little bit. She pretends so well and she placates and she pacifies Bob to make him think like they just can sweep it under the rug and keep going um, because she loves their life. She loves her safe little cushion world where she's a mom to their grown beautiful children, one who's about to get married, and she deeply loves their life together and she loves Bob. And uh, I think the reader kind of gets that vibe for a little bit that, oh my God, Darcy's just going to sweep it under the rug and th she's going to ignore it. She's going to ignore the fact that he's a serial killer. Um, and I was really worried when I, I sort of read it for the first time that she was going to continue on with life as normal. But what was great about Darcy, and I loved what King did here, is he made her a quiet and very calculating hero. She takes her time, she plots, she plans, and she fools Bob to thinking all is normal and well. But in that planning period is where her transformation is undergoing, her metamorphosis, because she cannot unsee those victim photos because when she discovered Bob's or what she was believing to be Bob, she did her internet research, she saw super graphic footage, she cannot unsee it. Um, and so she puts those female victims above her own life. She puts them above her children. She puts them above her entire world as a wife and mother. And she's like, hell no, he's going to do it again. I have to protect the women out there. I have to stop him. And she undergoes this transformation that's silent and deep inside herself. And she transforms into a hero. And she's just... Uh, incredible and that courageous and unselfish path she takes eliminates the sin of sloth and makes her a hero um a really fantastic hero against uh the monster that is bob and we get uh, a really great unforgettable scene uh, at the end of that transformation so to kind of bring back tess from big driver and episode uh our the part one she and tess from drive big driver are really the same here uh they realize they just cannot forget those previous female victims with tess it's the women in the drain pipe and with um darcy it's the photos of the dead women uh from the internet they just have this snap in their brain that they must protect others they must transform and become heroes they have to be brave they have to confront and become these insanely stronger versions of themselves through this pursuit of vengeance and payback and um I just love this redemptive transformation of Darcy, who's in her early 50s. She's seemingly, at least on the page, very mousy and meek. Um, but then we get this surge of power and bravery, which reminds me a lot of the cunning and creative Lisi from Lisi's story. So um, hopefully you guys agree, but I, I saw the same sort of power and gumption 
in Lisi. Um, although I think Lisi gets it pretty early on and not as late in the game as um, maybe Tess and Darcy, but all the same, these three women are very, very close to each other um, for me when I'm looking at how they rise up from the ashes a little bit. So my two that I explored uh, are the um, channeling BTK, I think is super huge, sort of getting into the mind of the serial killers and especially the ones that wanted media attention and just played these games with cops and mailing in all of these things. Um, so I enjoyed learning about that and putting my uh, mind in that headspace. The Netflix series Mindhunter is a really excellent um uh, sort of helps you channel that sort of 70s uh, killer vibe. So um, it's a really great series if you haven't seen it. A little, little creepy, but um, I greatly enjoyed it. So under getting in that serial killer zone did make this story more poignant and powerful for me, for sure. And Bob is like a perfect sort of parallel to BTK. And then female metamorphosis as we see it. And uh, we've got some a really powerful transformation. So uh, there's a scene in this story that is so fantastic, you guys. It is so kick-ass. It is just every... All of it, just the pacing and the proximity and oh my god, it's the best scene um, maybe ever. And I want to read you a little snippet into how... King creates this incredibly suspenseful um, moment between Darcy and Bob and Darcy has discovered something of Bob's and Bob has he's on his business trip but comes back in the middle of the night and wakes up Darcy and oh my god guys so I love this scene so much so I wanted to share a tiny snippet with you this is in the American hardcover um, toward the bottom of page 319. Hush, he said, and put a gentle finger on her lips. She could smell soap. He must have showered before he left the motel, a very Bob-like thing to do. I'll tell you everything. I'll make a clean breast. I think that deep down, I've always wanted you to know. He'd always wanted her to know? Dear God. There might be worse things waiting, but this was easily the most terrible thing so far. I don't want to know. Whatever it is you've got stuck in your head, I don't want to know. I see something different in your eyes, honey, and I've gotten very good at reading women's eyes. I've become something of an expert. WWDD stands for what would Darcy do? In this case, what would Darcy do if she found my special hiding place and what's inside my special box? I've always loved that box, by the way, because you gave it to me. He leaned forward and planted a quick kiss between her brows. His lips were moist. For the first time in her life, the touch of them on her skin revolted her, and it occurred to her that she might be dead before the sun came up, because dead women told no tales. Although, she thought, he'd try to make sure I didn't suffer. <sighs> so, that whole scene, guys, is electric. It is just 
supercharged on the page. The suspense, it's just a taut wire the entire time because so much has changed between them. Um, they were just this loving couple who for over a, a lifetime have known each other and now it's terrifyingly different. So loved that scene. So I have two characters I want to just mention really quick. Uh, and then, um, so the first character, of course, is Darcy, and I know I've talked about her a lot already, but there's one aspect of Darcy's life I did want to bring up with you guys. So, as I mentioned, she's, uh, what we'd call a boomer here for sure, um, a baby boomer born in that sort of 50s, 60s era, um, a lady of her time, made to be a wife and a mother, little else. She keeps house and hobbies and family. Um, but one aspect that really bothered me is when Darcy would talk about her sex life in the story and it's it's a brief little snippet it's not very detailed and from how it sounds it was it's a very vanilla sex life but it's not even good vanilla because she just casually mentions how Bob hardly pleases her but that it was okay because she just liked the warm cuddle parts at the end and when I read that inside I just wanted to rage and say freaking say something tell him but then I realized that I think that's my generation and that's a lot of women in my time who feel a lot more sexually liberated to speak out and talk about what they want and have those conversations that would potentially put a man in a vulnerable spot. And I feel just having conversations with the women in my life, they didn't feel very brave enough to say things like that or perhaps just didn't want to rock the boat or just sort of assumed that that's how it went. Like that's how things went. You just were unsatisfied sexually and you just crossed your fingers and hoped for the best for next time, which is devastating. Um, but I, I don't know if it's just maybe the women in my life were timid tammies or if it was just a general behavior of the time, but I get the vibe that speaking out about pleasure and what you liked and what you wanted just wasn't something that you wanted to go out of your way from as a woman and you just which makes me very sad um but darcy seemed really content with the safety of her husband rather than her own joy which just kind of makes the entire story more horrifying because her husband represented such safety and love for her to the point where she was like, oh yeah, it's totally fine that I never have, you know, sexual pleasure. It's once in a while is okay and I'm just pulling my hair out over here. But it just further emphasizes that meek and mild woman of her time and which is also why her transformation at the end when she just goes full badass mode um, is so great and so unexpected because she just seems so timid and someone who... Um, yeah, it is is of her time and and maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I'm hoping that maybe more boomer women were like, no, it wasn't like that at all and we're actually very outspoken and vocal, but um I maybe I just have a lot of timid tammies in my life where they were very uncomfortable on such topics, but um that made me very sad about Darcy um and even more sad how she took immense comfort not out of sex, but out of the love between Bob and her, which which, you know, that whole my entire life is a lie thing must have really stung. So 
there's a, there's one other character I did want to mention to you guys because um, hopefully you know by now I love my senior citizens and Steve King brings us a gem. Um, in the last few pages of the story, sort of after um, uh, Darcy's immensely heroic act and really sort of big climax of the story, we have a kind of cooling down and we meet this retired detective named Holt Ramsey who comes to her door in the dead of winter and he's uh he's pretty gray pretty grizzled he seems very sick and on his way out in terms of life but oh he has a great scene guys such great dialogue and for any of you bill hodges fans out there from the mr mercedes trilogy he gives me such bill hodges vibes just a retired detective who just you know i think bill hodges might be a bit less you know warm and gentle um but he this guy Holt is is a sweetheart but um if you're a Bill Hodges fan this this person is great and I think you'll appreciate him uh, quite a bit but uh Holt has been hunting down BD for a long time and he's he got pretty close but you can tell he's been on the case for many many years and what's fascinating is in the narrative when he meets Darcy he knows. He knows what went down. That's kind of why he's there. And she knows he knows. So it's kind of that wonderful dance with dialogue and the huge elephant in the room. And um, it's awesome. And he's just a good egg. And I love their scene together. And I love it when detectives, especially retired detectives, get that absolute truth um, about a long-fought case and they get to have a kind of closure concerning the bad guy they were chasing and I think we do get a little bit of that for Holt Ramsey so yay for retired detectives all day every day I love them they're the best and if you love Bill Hodges you gotta read A Good Marriage to uh, check out Holt Ramsey and if he's in anything else let me know guys if, if, if he's been in another Castle Rock story please let me know. So my final chunk of our exploration of a good marriage is the TV adaptation that came out in 2014. I'm not really sure what network or what uh, production it was released under. I, I watched it um, on Tubi like I did the streaming service for Big Driver and um, to be honest, my friends, uh, this was a bit of a letdown, guys. This uh, this adaptation was not very pleasing to me. The script was very clunky. I had uh, several problems with it. Even uh, around halfway, I just decided to hang it all up and just say, just let go. Just let go and watch it. Um, but it just never really picked back up for me. Uh, Joan Allen, plays a good Darcy. She's sweet and lively and lovely and gives you that quaint Susie Homemaker vibe and a lady in her 50s. But I think uh, the husband, Bob's casting, he's played by uh, Anthony LaPaglia uh, or LaPaglia if I'm, sound, if I'm saying that incorrectly. That one is a little flat and I, I do believe he was miscast. He's way too serious. Um, and he kind of gives me just a tiny slice of like mobster. So I, I don't, um, he's not very likable at all. And he strikes you as just very startling and not very friendly at all. And 
I think that with Bob and what we know about him and the way he speaks, he seems very approachable and likable and he's Mr. Volunteer and Mr. Community Service. So I feel that Bob's casting was poorly done and I don't feel there was a lot of um, connection between the two of them. Uh, so I, I do enjoy how, for the most part, it kept pretty close to the story. For example, there's one detail where Darcy, when she's a little nervous or is has insomnia, she'll binge eat sweets. Um, and in the story, it's Butterfingers, but we see her eating Tootsie Rolls in the movie. Um, the the mo main meaty points of the story were kept pretty close. Um, very cinematic, very melodramatic. For example, after Darcy makes her discovery in the garage, she walks into the rain and she's standing in the rain, which you learn in film class that anytime rain is featured within the story, it means change. Uh, it means the tides have turned. So very mel melodramatic. She's just like weeping in the rain and letting herself get soaked, which in Maine, that must be freezing cold rain. So, <laughs> but uh, what I did appreciate with the adaptation is just sort of solidifying a couple things that I got wrong in my own imagination. So there's a box that is discovered and it has these um, key items inside. In my mind, I don't know what was wrong with me, but I thought it was like the size of an Amazon box. And so I was dead wrong because in the actual film, it's very little. It's almost like an Altoid mint box. And I was like, oh, that's much richer. That's way better. So um, not an Amazon box, guys, uh, in case you got it wrong, too. I don't know where I got that. It's it's amazing, like where where one's mind can go. So but unfortunately, the scene that I read for you guys, the scene that I love so much in the novel, this just tight, suspenseful exchange between the two of them, not only is it it's not strong at all, but it's, it's clunky and it's kind of confusing. I was very disappointed um, and actually really disappointed now that, um, yeah, it just as I'm recalling it in more vivid detail, I'm, I'm pretty let down. Um, I remember really, really just uh, feeling crushed. <laughs> they lost the spirit of it for sure. Um, with King, he makes the scene so close and uncomfortable and so intimate and um, it, it's just is so emotionally devastating for me um, and as the reader especially because Darcy is just realizing her reality is this shattered snow globe. Um, and her husband, who she adores, he, he gets very emotional and he's in tears in front of her. And in her heart, she's super conflicted because she wants to comfort him. You know, that's her husband and he's upset. And yet her mind, her brain is following, fi firing on all cylinders that he's a liar. He's lying now. Everything he's ever said to her is a lie. And with the movie, um, Anthony uh, LaPaglia, he just sounds pissed off and annoyed and really nonchalant about explaining himself to Darcy. And the whole thing just doesn't work and I was really let down. So, um... I just lost the emotional power and they actually split it into multiple scenes which just crushed me further so um I have uh, eh and I have meh eh and meh on that um so 
Overall, I'm actually going to advise you to skip it because the powerful moments are lost in the very clunky script. And there's one other side note that also bugged me immensely about the, the adaptation. The house or the set that they're filming in is so claustrophobic. It looks like a doll's house. It just looks very tight, like a very low budget house that doesn't work. It just uh, feels very tight and uncomfortable and that could just be me. Um, but I do advise you to skip it, guys. Um, at the very climactic end, it ends up being cheesy, which is the kiss of death. So I recommend a not watch. Um, but if you really enjoyed this story, if you loved A Good Marriage, I do have another suggestion for you. There's a different film made in 2015 that is super close to this story and premise, only I think it's slightly more intense, um, if not on the same level. Um, but, and this film is 45 Years is the title with the actress Charlotte Rampling. Oh my god, you guys. The final scene of that movie hits way harder. And I think because uh, Charlotte Rampling and her husband in the film are celebrating almost 50 years together. And it's a slow burn that leaves you kind of shocked and dumbfounded at the end. I felt like I got the wind knocked out of me. I love the actress Charlotte Rampling. I think she's really terrific, but it's this basically the whole movie is this sweet old couple planning an anniversary and they're just kind of building and making plans for it and in this totally believable day-to-day -day, um, life is portrayed between them and then uh, one day Charlotte Rampling's in the attic she's shuffling some things around uh, much like Darcy in the garage just looking for batteries and then Charlotte Rampling she plugs in the old projector with some slides from the 70s and dang guys um, the punch is so deep uh, I would love for you guys to see it I won't say anything else because it's it's great um, so it takes a little bit to get going 45 years but the ending is so worth it oh wow I was breathless so I would watch 45 years instead of a good marriage adaptation way better um, good marriage um, the adaptation kind of left me a little sad so um, overall uh, I think we've been down here in the dark long enough wouldn't you say so the sunrise is on its way so will you please join me for a few really quick final thoughts on this amazing connection collection <laughs> with an L on this amazing collection up next All right, listeners, we made it through the night. I knew we could do it. The sun is out. I want to thank you all so much for joining me on this two-part coverage of Full Dark No Stars. I absolutely adore this novella collection. As mentioned previously, it would be under my arm as I would head into the book signing with Mr. King. Hopefully that happens. I'm putting it out into the universe because um, it would be this one, guys. It is an incredible novella collection and I hope you all read it or reread it for that matter because I think you'll definitely get a lot out of it. But overall, I think I realized how 
strong this collection is operating in terms of female empowerment. We've got some really strong female heroes. Um, unfortunately, they're also victims before they become heroes, but I think that's true with a lot of heroes, actually, is um, when we get knocked down, we come back up sort of thing. And so we've got a lot of strong female characters within Full Dark No Stars, and I would like to have more conversations about those, especially in upcoming novels um, where we have complete female casts and uh, protagonists that are um, women who are struggling with a lot of adversity. Uh, ones that come to mind are uh, Rose Matter, Dolores Claiborne, um, I would even like to revisit Firestarter again. I know she's a very young girl, but I think we can sort of explore some female-centric uh, narratives in Steve King's collections. But uh, so the sins we explored in these four stories was, of course, Wilford Dreams' pride, his suffocatingly unquenchable pride in 1922, and then we have um, Tess, her wrath in Big Driver. She just decides, nope, no thoughts and prayers on this one. I'm going for the throat and taking justice into my own hands, uh, which we see with several strong females along the way. I kind of got, not only did I wholeheartedly envision her as Selena Kyle, who Michelle Pfeiffer played in um, 1992's Batman Returns, but I also see her as kind of like a Ripley from Alien as well. Just, you know, somebody, a lady who had a different life, um, maybe a, a sweeter, softer, more feminine, maternal, or, or just independent life, very calm and um, collected and uh, very her own, and then it gets obliterated. And in that new reality, you can either be a victim or you could pick up the pieces and just start running. So I enjoy, I enjoy thus far uh, the strong females that we've seen in this collection. Uh, and then the sin of wrath was just really cool to explore for sure. And I think wrath is all over Big Driver, and rightly so. Um, fair extension, I enjoyed the super green envy that we have in that story. Um, I also enjoy how I didn't feel um, the text example shared enough of it, but one thing I forgot to kind of mention in the fair extension chunk is how um, we do see George Elvid kind of show his monstrous form. He looks like a kind of pudgy, uh, average Joe kind of person, and then as he's making his deal with Dave, we see his teeth get long and sharp. We see his face, facial structure bones sort of get um, tighter and sharper. His jawline curves down. Um, there's a point where it's actually right after the scene I read where he starts laughing uncontrollably, laughing with seeming glee and tears run down his face and they looked red and bloody in the setting sunlight. So there was all kinds of monstrous little things that popped up in that narrative, which also reminds me of the most excellent short story from Everything's Eventual, The Man in the Black Suit. So hopefully you guys read that one because it's fire. It's so cool. And we've got another devil. We have the devil according to Sweet Little Boy in 1914 where he just uh, 
he knows in his soul that he saw the devil that day down by the creek. So I loved the sort of parallels between those stories and I like the physical transformation that talking to this dairy citizen is uh, unleashing some creepy demonic stuff. And remember guys, the devil's not your friend, even though he might seem to be or <laughs> you might want him to be. Just run. Just do the right thing and go home. So uh, Fair Extension was way too short for me. I wanted longer. I got really greedy, but it's a great palette cleanser and I do feel it does belong in this collection for sure, especially on the theme of payback and revenge. And in this case, we see not necessarily payback, but mostly just malice. We just see um, uh, unending cruelty on an innocent person, which is a little hard to stomach. So I think I was hoping for more of closure in Fair Extension. And then uh, the ice cream sundae at the end of it all is uh, a good marriage and as I mentioned guys it just uh, really dug deep um, and resonated very deep in, in me this second time around and um, perhaps it is because I am seven years older and looking at life in a different way looking at marriage and commitment and family and all those things in a different way and so that domestic annihilation um, for lack of a better expression is uh, huge on the fear list I found out so uh, uh, a good marriage it's just suspense in spades it's geniusly written and crafted and paced and so sexy and although i'm never fond of researching serial killers learning about btk and um his terrorist reign in kansas did help me appreciate a good marriage to a greater degree but these four stories all of those balloon strands that i'm sort of carting around with me is it, this is one of my top five favorites in all of Stephen King's works. Um, and this one is more of a personal, uh, of course, uh, obsession and delight with it just because it was the very first one for me. But I'd like to hear how this collection strikes all of you guys. Um, I, I think it's got a lot of fans, but I don't really hear it uh, talked about much, so I do consider it an underrated title, but what do you guys think of Full Darkness Stars? I would really love to hear your thoughts um, on whether you think uh, all four of them are working together or um, any thoughts at all because this one is super near and dear to my heart and so I love discussing these stories with you guys. I think uh, going forward our next adventure might be, it's a toss-up between The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon because I kind of want a little bit of a light-hearted trek into the forest and I remember just loving Trisha's journey um, and it's uh, another good female protagonist there so I'm thinking about going down that path. Or we might flip over to Revival because that one is so good, guys. And Mike Flanagan is going to make it into a movie for us and it's going to be awesome. So it might be that one. Um, or I might just, you know, come have a third pick from left field here that I'm not sure about. But 
Uh, I'm assuming it's it's one of those two that's gonna be popping up. Uh, if not, <laughs> I will let you you know. Uh, later on coming up, I am salivating to read Bag of Bones and I've had one or two listeners reach out as um, with that recommendation. So that is coming, I promise guys. I'm really looking forward to that as I have never read Bag of Bones before. I have heard it's his most literary tale, so I'm already salivating um, with that. But uh, yeah, so please write in to Underrated SK with any questions, comments, um, any tidbits that you want to discuss more with me, or if you feel I missed something crucial and uh, am dead wrong, please let me know. Um, I love these stories and I love talking about them with readers because I'm right in there with you in the trenches enjoying Stephen King's works. So uh, feel free to also reach out on social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on the Anchor app, we're on Apple Podcasts. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it. from the bottom of my little marshmallow heart. If you would rate on Apple Podcasts, just give us a five-star rating so we can attract a few more readers. Uh, Or you can leave a review, all good. Um, I know review's a little bit harder. You're like, oh, I gotta type stuff. But the five-star click is uh, not too challenging. So I would greatly appreciate any help you can provide to the podcast uh, so we can get uh, some more readers discussing these amazing titles with us. But that's about all I have on this fan-freaking-tastic collection, guys. I had such a blast nerding out on these stories with you. I know some of them were a little long, a little rowdy, a little rambly. Um, This is what happens when I get real happy and excited. So I hope you guys enjoy the collection. Please reread it if it's been a minute. Uh, Please read it for the first time if you've never read it. Uh, Let's start there. Let's do that first immediately, ASAP. Um, it's kick-ass, it moves fast, you'll be thrilled, you'll have big questions, uh, and overall you'll look at some seven deadly sins in hopefully a new way. Which, uh, oh yeah, sloth, I forgot. (laughs) Sloth in a good marriage. I know that's a little bit more of a harder sell, but, um, I think, uh, bless her heart, Darcy and the sloth, she, she knocked that guy right to the, to the point. So we had, um... Wrath, Pride, Sloth, and Envy. So those four. So uh, are there any Stephen King films, uh, other, or pardon me, other Stephen King works that feature? I know, I know we've got some lust. I can think of a few for those. I know there might be one in Gluttony. Um, but uh, yeah, let me know if you if you have some other recommendations or good titles um, for Seven Deadly Sin stuff, because I don't really know how that happened. It just sort of popped up in this collection. It's kind of fun. Um, but I so appreciate you guys listening and having me be a part of your day. It means the world. And I will talk to you again very soon. Please take care. Please continue standing up for what you believe in. And stay safe out there. Uh, because the night is dark and full of terrors. Um, Pardon that very unnecessary Game of Thrones reference. But um, uh, much love and light to all of you. Please take care and we'll talk again soon. Bye!